tonight on Huckabee, Tennessee Senator Bill Haggerty, attorney and author Ken Starr, death-defying escape artist Kristen Johnson, and classic country's Tony Jackson. What a great crowd we've got here in our theater. I really hope you'll come sometime and join this raucous group of people who make up our audience, because they're so much fun. We love having people come from all over the country to be right here in our studio audience. And I want to I begin tonight a little differently, because something has happened within the family of our show, and I want to be able to just let you in on it. Uh, we love Keith Bilbrey, our announcer. This week... He and his wonderful wife, Emmy Jo, were at home, and they live in this magnificent home that was built in 1864 until Wednesday, and it caught fire and basically burned to the ground. And it has broken all of our hearts. Of course, uh, they lost everything. They literally got out with nothing but the clothes on their back. Uh, Keith had some shoes. I think Emmy Jo came out barefoot. Uh, about the only thing salvaged were a few treasured guitars that uh, Keith had. Keith, I want you to know that every one of us, our hearts break for you and Emmy Joe, and the Thank fact you. that you even showed up tonight to still do this show is just an amazing well, testament to your you character. Gotta be with your family, you know? We love you, brother. We love you. And on July the 15th, we're going to have a special tribute to Keith and Emmy Joe. It'll be live streamed, so we'll give you more information about that. But watch our website and announcements. This would be a great opportunity for you to sign up uh, for all of our uh, information on Huckabee.tv because we'll have more information about that. But uh, again, pray for them as they go through this very challenging time. Let me say this. I never thought that a vaccine to prevent COVID and give us the opportunity to start living freely would be controversial. But there are a lot of things happening in our country today that I never thought. Look, I know I'm talking to some folks who adamantly have no plan to take the vaccine and some folks who are absolutely convinced that everyone must take it. I only ask that if you are on the hard side of either position, or even if you're somewhere in the middle, take a deep breath. Let me visit with you a minute. My wife and I took the vaccine. We were glad to get it. I've had some close friends who've died from COVID, and I've had some other friends who almost did. I've watched COVID destroy the businesses and livelihoods of many friends and keep families apart for irreplaceable events like funerals, weddings, birthdays, and graduations. COVID has kept many of us from long planned travel. 
And sadly, it's given government an excuse to abuse the rights of all of us. They've done it. I took the vaccine knowing it wasn't perfect and recognizing that just as with any medical procedure, there were risks. Yet I determined that the risk of the vaccine were less for me than the risk of COVID because I've had pneumonia once and therefore compromised lungs. I don't think taking the vaccine makes me better or makes me smarter or more compassionate or moral than anybody else. I really don't. It just was a simple personal health decision. By the way, I've taken vaccines for the flu every year. I've taken it for the shingles, pneumonia, as well as for malaria, yellow fever, and other things. Sometimes when I traveled, I had to take it in order to go to places that I've been to, like Rwanda, Ethiopia, India, and Pakistan. Honestly, the vaccine wasn't that bad. Some of those places I went, that was a real mess. Now, some people have root canals. Other people just decide to get the tooth pulled. I don't think one of those choices makes a person better than the other. I got friends, deep, loving friends, who think that if you don't get the vaccine, you're a moron. Or worse, that you don't love your fellow human beings. That's not just judgmental. It's rather arrogant. But I also have friends who consider it a badge of honor and political freedom and superiority to defy ever taking the vaccine. I simply don't think it heroic to take it or not take it. It's a choice. It's freedom. And I should respect that what you decide and why you decide it is strictly your business. I really do. Now, why should I be so concerned about what you do? If I take the vaccine, you are little or no threat to me if you don't take it. So I got no reason to lecture or scream at you. And if you don't take the vaccine, does that make me less courageous or conservative than you? I'm not sure how. It's ridiculous that taking a vaccine has become a political issue for some people. Hey, we wouldn't have a vaccine had President Trump not launched Operation Warp Speed. That's for sure. And he himself and Melania, they took the shot. And you know, he'd already had COVID. He probably didn't even need a vaccine for protection. Now, it would have been helpful had President Biden at least acknowledged that President Trump had made the vaccine available in record time. But that aside, it's not about your politics. It's simply about your personal risk assessment of what you believe is of greater threat to you, the malady or the cure. So I implore you, Get all the information that you can from your doctor and from all the sources that you trust. If you're comfortable taking the vaccine, then do so. And do it without regard if others will call you a sucker. Who cares? Live by your convictions, not by the criticism of others. And if you don't choose to take the vaccine, then I respect your decision. And I hope people won't criticize or condemn you for it. Because it's your personal decision. And you've got every right to make it. You might not be able to go to certain countries or places, but there are a lot of restrictions about where we can go and what we can do based on decisions we make. But it's still your decision, not mine. But you know what I hope for? I really do. I hope someone will develop a vaccine that makes all of us polite, respectful of others, and kind. And... 
If that happens, then I might insist that we all have to take that vaccine. My first guest tonight is a senator serving for the great state of Tennessee. He's also served as ambassador to Japan under President Trump, and he has been a pioneer in economic development for the state of Tennessee for many years. He says a Democrat's far-left agenda is out of step with everyday Americans, and he's fighting back. He's joined his Republican colleagues this week to block Senate 1, S1, a so-called voting rights bill. Yeah, good for him because it would have actually federalized elections and handed even more power to Democrats pretty much forever. Would you welcome to the show a wonderful senator and somebody we can celebrate here in this show, Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee. Can I just tell you it's not often that the audience so loves a guy that they applauded before I even get through the introduction. <laughs> that, that speaks very well of you. Well, Welcome. this is a hometown audience, uh, Governor. This is my home county. My mother lives 10 miles up the road here. So, so. you uh, have a good reason to feel at home oh, yeah. here. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that Senate bill, S1. Um, you, you know, to hear people on MSNBC or CNN talk, it's like the greatest thing to ever happen to America. What is it that people don't know about that bill and what it would do that we ought to be worried about? Well, one, it's misnamed from the very beginning. They call it the For the People Act. It's For the Politicians Act. Mm. It's For the Democrat Politicians Act, by the way. <laughs> it's one of the most blatant power grabs that I think we've ever seen. And they c continue to manufacture crisis after crisis to justify this. They tried to push this through after President Trump won in 2016. Early 2017, that was the crisis, the yeah. unacceptable fact that Donald Trump won. They tried again in 2018. They tried in 2020. Nancy Pelosi put it into her pandemic relief bill. Now they're saying the crisis is the fact that certain states are going through and trying to tighten up some of their voter identity rules. Well, the pandemic caused a lot of rules to slide and change, and I think legislatures are rightfully going back and taking a look. But what it does is it attempts to codify, to legislate, what has been determined to be some of the worst and, and most vulnerable aspects of voter fraud ever. In fact, President Jimmy Carter, after he retired, former Secretary of State James Baker led a commission, a bipartisan commission, and they uncovered the greatest vulnerabilities to voter fraud. You know what the top two were? <laughs> Mail-in voting, and you got it, ballot harvesting. Wow. They're trying to codify that in this bill. So if this were to pass, um, it, it really would put the full authority of our elections in the hands of the federal government, that's blatantly unconstitutional. So how would they push that and think that it's going to hold? Indeed, the Constitution specifically states that setting the rules for election is in the hands of state legislatures. Yeah. They want to usurp all of that and in one fell swoop, rewrite election laws for all 50 states in one night. That's not going to happen. That's why we stood up. I fought this in committee. I stood on the floor of the Senate and fought against this, and I certainly voted against it. And, and I think so many of us are glad that you did and others. Um, there is a spending palooza going on in Washington right now. And, and President Biden yesterday made his speech. He whispered most of it. I, I thought that was bizarre. It's a strange, it's a strange uh, weird thing to watch. But he was whispering very loudly about how proud he was of all the money that he wanted to spend. And he said, you know, this is bipartisan. 
Republicans that I know, Senator, they believe in infrastructure, roads, bridges, airports, sewer systems, water systems, because that's something that benefits us all. But a lot of the things that are packed into this bill, they're not infrastructure. They're human services. Yes. How do you help the American people understand that they're being had? Well, I, it's, from my perspective, very easy. I've been a business person all my life. I've made investments. Yeah. But those investments earn a return. That's the object. Putting investments in place that will earn a return for the American taxpayer, I think we all understand. That's bridges, roads, highways, airports, waterways, yeah. even broadband. Yeah. That will generate a positive return for America, but not free nanny care. Things yeah. that they want to put in there basically are this socialist wish list. And by the way, they want to destroy all the benefits of the 2017 Tax Act that President Trump put in place. That was the foundational component of the economic juggernaut that President Trump built that up until the pandemic made America the fastest growing economy in the world. Right now we're dealing with uh, much higher gasoline prices and meat prices and lumber prices. Do people not understand that something maybe has changed that's not all that terrific for America right now? Oh, in inflation is definitely on its way. We saw the, the report last month, the highest inflation we've seen in 13 years. And even though gas prices aren't in the consumer price index, all we have to do is go to the pump and see the failings of the Biden yeah. administration. The first thing he does when he comes into office is cancel the Keystone XL pipeline. Then he forbids drilling on federal lands. The Chinese are laughing all the way to the bank, my friends, because mm. that oil is going to be ported to China now. Our costs are going up. And by the way, everything we buy has to be transported. It has to be moved. So this inflation is creeping through the economy, not only because of these bad policy decisions, but also because of the rampant spending that's underway right now, thanks to this, as you said, the Lollapalooza of spending that Bernie Sanders would like to take up to $6 trillion. I, I, you know, somebody at some point has to start paying for that, and it's going to be our grandchildren. I mean, exactly. I'm close enough to home plate. I'm probably going to slide in safe before it's all <laughs> coming to roost. But, you know, I got some grandkids coming along, and they haven't even gotten up to the plate to bat yet, and they're already going to be saddled with a debt that will make it very hard for them to ever own a home or go to college or do the things that we kind of assume that young Americans will want to do. Uh, that ought to scare the daylights out of us. You're exactly right, Governor. And I, I'm not as far along or as close to home plate as you may be, but I've got four wonderful children right now. I hope to see my grandchildren someday, yeah. but they will be saddled with this debt. The, 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 this is going to come home to roost. And we've got to step back and take a, a very clear-eyed assessment. I understand the pandemic is a unique situation. We had to get through that. And in 2020, there was bipartisan support to do this. Yeah. The bills that were passed, the pandemic relief bills, while not perfect, I think were aimed in the right direction. When the Biden administration came in, their first, quote, pandemic relief was a $1.9 trillion spendathon. Mm. We'd not even spent a trillion dollars from the previous set of pandemic relief measures. They put another $1.9 trillion on top of this. They got zero Republican support for good reason. And it looks like they're headed right down that path again. You were a very successful business person prior to getting into politics. And, and, and a lot of your public service was done under the governors of Tennessee. You were head of economic development. You understand it better than 99% of the American public. To build the economy of this country, uh, from your perspective, both as a business person and as an individual who has led economic development, now as a U.S. senator, what are the steps we need to be taking to ensure that we have a good economic foundation? We need to create the proper set of incentives. That's how one becomes successful in business. And creating the right set of incentives here in the state of Tennessee, when I was privileged to come in and work to take our economy out of the last downturn, I came in um, as we were coming out of the last recession. 
And at that point in time, Tennessee's economy was not performing well. We were in the bottom half of all measures. We had higher unemployment than the rest of the nation. GDP growth, wage growth, we were not there. We restructured. We created a, an environment here that made it hospitable to business. Low taxes, mm. fair regulations. And we got out and recruited like crazy. Hard work always matters, too. And we made it clear that businesses could survive here and thrive yeah. here in Tennessee. And Tennessee is on fire today. More people are moving in. You can't keep up with it. It's, it's staggering. And I think a lot of that was the seeds that you planted. And now you get to do it as a U.S. Senator. I, I want to say how grateful we are that you're there, thankful for your time as ambassador to Japan and uh, all that that brought. But more importantly... It was a great honor to serve our nation in that capacity, too. A true leader in the U.S. Senate and standing for the right things, not just for your state, but we like to think that a senator like you is standing for all of America. And I want to say thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Governor. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Our thanks to Senator Bill Haggerty. And by the way, if you want to keep up with the senator on social media, all you have to do is to follow him at Bill Haggerty TN for Tennessee, of course. Now, I'm going to let our always ready and mostly steady announcer, Keith Bilbrey, tell us what we have coming up on the show tonight. Well, I would love to. Coming up, attorney Ken Starr and later country music's Tony Jackson. Lots more Huckabee is on the way. Watching that spot, you might think the work of Samaritan's Purse is never done. Well, you'd be right. It's the calling of the Lord to serve those who are suffering and broken, whether it's in your neighborhood or across the sea. I hope that you'll demonstrate your generous heart by calling Samaritan's Purse, or you can just visit their website and give a financial gift to help. And when you do, don't forget God's promise from Proverbs. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Be sure to give to Samaritan's Purse. Give them a call today. Well, Judge Ken Starr has had a very distinguished career as a judge, attorney, solicitor general of the United States, independent counsel, lecturer, college president of a major college and university, commentator, best-selling author. I mean, he's pretty well done it all. He's got a brand new book of special interest to me, and I think to all of us. It's called Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. What an honor to welcome Judge Ken Starr. Ken, good to have you here. Thank, Thank you, Governor. You. Thank you. I cannot think of a book that is more timely, uh, even in light of some recent Supreme Court decisions, as your book on religious liberty. Why would you take on this topic? I mean, you could write about so many different things in the law Obviously, this must be important for you. It's dear to my heart. And also, Governor, because of the pandemic, uh, your opening was very powerful. And mm. so how do we respond? Well, some governors, unlike the governor of Arkansas no. a few years ago, responded very poorly. Mm. To classify churches as non-essential and liquor stores as essential was just, to me, a step way too far that we had lost sight of what the founding generation wanted this country to be, which was a sweet land of liberty, including religious liberty. I had to write the book. Well, I think we're all glad you did because a lot of Americans just sort of obeyed whatever the government told them, even if it meant when the government said you can't go to church, or if you go, uh, only 10 of you can be in a building that seats 2,500. 
I mean, those kind of things, they're hard to even comprehend why any government official thinks that that makes sense. Um, so in the midst of the pandemic, you had some very heavy-handed government mandates. Why did churches fall in line without fighting back better? I think the idea was let's be obedient. We also don't know to, uh, to authority. We're to yeah. respect authority. Uh, and we didn't know the ramifications of the benefit, but we should have caught on when, for example, the governor of Nevada said casinos can operate at one half capacity, but churches 50, no matter how large the sanctuary, the auditorium. And so people should have said, and the pastors and the ministers, the priests, the rabbis are saying, this is not right. And so the litigation followed. It's a shame that we had to do this, but we had to live through approximately 10 months of heavy litigation until the Supreme Court, in time for Christmas, Merry Christmas, <laughs> in time for Hanukkah, yeah. said, stop it. It's yeah. enough. We've got to allow these religious institutions to operate. As the Solicitor General of the United States, a lot of people may not know, you are the chief lawyer for the executive branch of government, so you have argued cases before the Supreme Court on many occasions. You know them well. Were you surprised that the current Supreme Court actually came out in favor of some religious liberty cases recently? Not at all. And that's part of the good news, Governor, of the book. For 40 years, and I really became invested in the subject. I was interested in the subject. But 40 years ago during the Reagan administration, President Reagan, as you know, was a great friend of religious liberty. Yes. And at that time, so was Congress. Yeah, good point. And yeah. including Democrats. Yeah. It was pro-religious, yes, pro-religious legislation would pass. So for 40 years I've been watching this, but there's been a terrible erosion in the ability of people of faith to operate without a fear of government sanction. The church has really just brought it home. It's almost a parable of this broader truth that the culture has become hostile to, the popular culture has become hostile to religious liberty. But guess what? Throughout, through thick and thin, for 40 years, the Supreme Court of the United States has almost always ruled in favor of religious liberty, including just very recently in the city of Philadelphia case. And I hope everyone focuses on that because the Supreme Court was unanimous in rejecting the proposition that Catholic social services could be put out of business because they would not place precious children in non-traditional homes. You know, I, I was stunned that it was nine to zero. We don't typically see nine to zero cases even on less controversial things. Is, is that a change of the attitude of the court, or is it just that maybe there's enough presence there and a, a good sense of, of arguing the, the positive side of religious liberty that even the liberal side of the court is saying, you know, we can't really defy that? It's because of the great principles of religious liberty mm. that unite justices who might disagree on a wide, and do, disagree on a wide range of things. An example I use in the book is a Christian school that fired a school teacher because she threatened litigation. Huh. That was viewed as totally incompatible with Paul's admonition of the church at Corinth. So you have to leave. And the Obama administration, EEOC, and the Obama administration Justice Department took the side of the teacher. She lost nine to nothing in the Supreme Court with Ruth Bader Ginsburg voting in favor of religious liberty, the right of the Christian school to determine who will teach. That is a very powerful reminder. In the book, Religious Liberty in Crisis, that you've written, 
you also establish why of all the basic rights we have in the Bill of Rights, and we have quite a few, and they're, they're given to individuals, not given to the government, they're given to us as citizens. Why is this one so important? And you talk about that, and I want you to articulate that for our audience. Because first of all, look at the text. It's the first of the first. If we don't have religious liberty, the other liberties are going to be seriously called into question. They're going to be eroded. But it also has to do with the founding generation's view of what the good society is. And in the very first Congress of the United States, the following law was passed to govern what is now Ohio and Indiana, the Midwest. Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Religion was viewed as one of the three pillars of the good society, the moral society. And th thus we need, as the founders would say, to preserve the opportunity, protect freedom of conscience. You're free not to believe, Sure. right? attend the church of your choice, but you also don't have to attend. It's part of the beauty of the American system. It believes in freedom. Freedom is the baseline, but we have a society that, as William O. Douglas said, a liberal justice of the Supreme Court, we are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. That's who we are. Mm. I hope we don't forget who we are. I sometimes fear that we do. Uh, it's why your book is a very, very important message for every American, not just church-going people. This is an important message. I would love for young people to get this book. I, I wish they would get it with the hope that they could tear it apart. I mean, just, just say to them, read the book and see if you can find all the faults in it and see if it doesn't speak to you because you've documented it in such a very powerful way. Ken Starr, great to see you again. So good to see you, Governor. Thank you for being here, and thank you for the book. It's called Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty by Ken Starr. It is available now. And by the way, everyone who's concerned about the erosion of our rights, you honestly need to read it. You truly do. Hey, Keith, what else do we have to look forward to tonight? Because I know there's some big stuff coming up. Well, next, laugh with Mike's in case you missed it news stories. Later, the amazing Lady Houdini, Kristen Johnson. More Huckabee is on the way. the music of Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. Yes. I mean, Keith and I were over here, you know, we were moving as best we could. And, and I said, you know, Keith, you remember the phrase from the uh, 70s, yeah. get down. Well, we can get down, but getting back up at our age is the, the problem. problem. <laughs> That's the challenge for us. That's so. the reason Trey was chosen to them to juggle the knives over. That's exactly why Wasn't he a, did it. Matter, it. We weren't afraid. It's just we couldn't get back up. Yeah, we were. <laughs> yeah, we were. <laughs> there were a lot of reasons we didn't oh, do that. And number. There was a reason that he did. And he still lived to tell about it. Yeah. Hey, from slimy soap to dancing frogs, we've got the news that you will find riveting on In Case You Missed It. See what I did there? Ribbit. Yeah. Believe it or not, the pandemic did have one silver lining. 
Soon Americans will no longer have to hop over to Croatia to visit Froggy Land. <laughs> Why? Because it's coming to America. Now, it's a museum with over 500 stuffed frogs mounted by Hungarian taxidermist Ferenc Mayer, who put them into human-like poses, including frogs in a classroom and frogs playing poker. Yeah. <laughs> That's not art. <laughs> Dogs playing poker is art. That's art, yeah. You ever played point. with your dog? I lost. I bet you did. <laughs> wow. Now, there are also frogs at a ball, uh -huh. and one of them is a prince, but you've got to kiss all the other frogs in order to find him. I don't think so. Mm. By the way, I don't think the audience got that one, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> maybe they just didn't think it was funny. I don't I know. I didn't get it either. I'm still but, <laughs> One reviewer on Travel Advisor called Froggyland probably, listen to this, quote, the best stuffed frog museum I've ever visited. <laughs> Probably? How many stuffed frog museums has he seen? How many are there? I want to know who stuffs frogs. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I've stuffed some stuff in my life, you know. Yeah. By the way, did you hear about the taxidermist who no. uh, was also a veterinarian? No. Yeah, uh, he had a sign out front that says, either way, you get your dog back. There you there go. You go. <laughs> oh, that was so bad. terrible. Anyway, oh, and I'm going to hear from one of these people. One animal rights activist called it disgusting animal cruelty. Hey, folks, the taxidermist died back in 1947, and no, he did not stuff himself. So trust me, all these frogs would have croaked long ago. Oh! Yeah. All right. Croak. You, you got to have a sound effect for croak. Surely for that. Yeah. <laughs> French artisan Damien Desrochers has the perfect product for that snail slime soap. Now, if you think there's a lot of soap slime in your shower now, just mm -hmm. imagine. He claims that snail slime is all natural, high in collagen, and has anti-aging properties. It'll make you feel four years old again. Mm. Which was the last time you willingly rubbed a snail on your face, by the way. <laughs> now, Damien uses so much slime, he started his own snail farm. He's even bred an extra slimy species called the CNN commentator. Oh! 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 Yes! Anyway, Damien says that he loves snails and he finds them very endearing. It's true, once they get attached to you, they stick to you like glue, right? <laughs> Very true. All right, speaking of cuddly critters, Kate Felmont of Beaverton, Oregon, has a cat named Esme. That's literally a cat burglar. Huh. Yeah. Esme has brought home so many stolen gloves that Kate hung them on a clothesline and put up a sign reading, my cat is a thief. Please take these items if they are yours. Wow. Now, the sign includes a drawing of Esme stealing a glove in hopes that a public shaming will reform her cat. It won't do it. Uh -uh. Cats are shameless. You can't okay? shame This is true. But it's it like did inspire other cat owners to share their stories on Twitter of their own cat's thievery. So, I don't know, some of that. I mean, there was one of them, for example, uh, an unnerving cat that keeps bringing home the collars of other cats. Ooh. So, it's either a serial killer or it's shoplifting at PetSmart. We yeah. don't know. I, I'd like to see that removal technique. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, at least those cats were more competent burglars than this week's Huck's criminal mastermind. 
a 19-year-old male in Milwaukee imbibed a little too much, and he decided to break into an Airbnb to sleep it off. <laughs> he woke up handcuffed, surrounded by cops, and very confused. Keith, get this. Of all the Airbnbs in Milwaukee, he had chosen one that has occupied by three Montana sheriff's deputies who were there in town Ooh. for a police training seminar. Oh, wow. Bad luck. Ah. <laughs> and they thought, well, we ought to just move to Milwaukee. Here, the crooks come to you. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, they were out of their jurisdiction, so they called the local cops, and when the teen woke up, there were more cops in that Airbnb than there are in Portland right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a subject of a lot of conversation. A lot of conversation, yeah. All right, finally, your favorite word in this segment of our show. <laughs> finally, a story that proves that all these lockdowns have given people way too much free time. Someone posted a petition on change.org calling for Jeff Bezos, the billionaire founder of Amazon, to buy the Mona Lisa and eat it. No. They really want him to do it. It has almost 9,300 signatures already. The petition was inspired by some of Bezos' actual purchases. For example... He paid $500 million for a yacht that is longer than a football field, and he bought four New York apartments that he combined into a 23,000-square-foot penthouse. Silliest of all, he bought the Washington Post. <laughs> that way he could lecture all of us to cut down on our consumption so we would save the planet. There you go. <laughs> Actually, I think the Mona Lisa would be easier to swallow than even buying the Washington Post. <laughs> and besides, who doesn't love Italian food? That's right. <laughs> anyway, I personally think this petition just proves that because some people are given an online platform, that doesn't mean anyone should take them seriously. Yes. I mean, Twitter proves that, mm -hmm. I think, right? Anyway, before people start petitioning for me to be eaten, I'm going to end this bit, but until next time, remember, we read the news. So Coming up, an amazing water stunt by escape artist Kristen Johnson. Then, country music star Tony Jackson. Stay with Huckabee. MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter. And follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. Welcome back. Let me tell you about this next part of the show. Kristen Johnson wanted girls to know that nothing is off limits just because you're female. So she just set out to break Harry Houdini's record of 1,000 escapes from the treacherous water cell. 2,700 escapes later, she is rightfully known as Lady Houdini. Would you welcome the amazing Kristen Johnson and her husband, Kevin Ridgway. Great having you guys here. Very glad to be here. Thank you. This is going to be either the most amazing thing we've ever done on this show... <laughs> Oh, we're all going to be laying on the floor crying our eyes out. I don't know what's going to happen. You've done this 2,700 times. Have you ever had one that went wrong? I've had two occasions where I've had to be extracted. Wow. Well, that's never going to happen here tonight, okay? No, that's... Those, are, those are really good statistical numbers. That is really good. Yeah, Very so, good. 
Good. We're going to keep it going like that. So whatever gave you the notion to start this stuff? Well, Kevin and I were doing an illusion show. Uh-huh. And I am not a, um, a dancer, and I'm not particularly graceful. So I figured, mm, I better do something so that I could be an equal partner in the show. So, and I just had no idea that it would take off the way it did. But by the way, if you have a spare straitjacket, we need one for Trey. It would be very nice to have that. So I, I do believe I have one that'll fit him. We'll buy it from you. Um, you hold your breath for an extraordinary long time. That's not something that's natural. How long can you hold your breath? My best static is five minutes and two seconds. Um, wow. That is, you know, non-stressed. It's a little different when you get locked into a tank of water with a lot yeah, of change. Yeah, it would be for me, probably. On, so, Kevin, do you ever get nervous? Your wife's in this tank? I would say concern is the best adjective, only because I know how hard she trains. Yeah. If she didn't train as hard as she did, I'd probably be freaking out as much as these people will be in a few moments. Well, I'm freaking out, and we haven't even started, but <laughs> let's get started. Let's Absolutely. give it a Let's give it a go, as the All Brits right. would say. All right. Kristen Johnson is the first person to perform in the water torture cell in full view. Tonight, there will be no cover. In fact, there's even a challenge to anyone who can prove that she uses a second a breathing device, takes a second breath of air, or uses a key of any kind. Smith & Wesson M1900 leg shackles. These are typically used in the county jail system. They're not very comfortable. Smith & Wesson M100 handcuffs used by over 95% of the police officers in the country today. Governor, if you'd be so kind, come over here, check them out, make sure they're the real deal. Go ahead and tighten them up a bit further. They're real. Very good. Wow. Governor, let me know as soon as you have the lock in place, please.
I couldn't hold my breath this long. No way in the world. Just like she's good. The world's premier female skateboarders. Give it up for Crystal Johnson. <laughs> oh. Wow. Wow. Lady Houdini. Check out our website and look her up at social media for more incredible stunts. Tony Jackson is here next. Hey. Next week, join Mike's guest, Rudy Giuliani and Pat Williams. Well, Tony Jackson is a highly respected traditional country music singer. He's got a golden voice that is often compared to that of Randy Travis or many other great country artists, but he's unique. He has impressed some of the biggest stars in music to record with him. I mean, you know, folks like Vince Gill, Steve Cropper, and the Time Jumpers. And Rolling Stone magazine named Tony an artist you need to know. I actually agree for once with Rolling Stone magazine. How about that? He's also a proud veteran, having served in the United States Marines. Welcome back to the show, because we love having him, Tony Jackson. So you want to get in that water tank, huh? You want to try that? My heart's still beating from uh, <laughs> watching that backstage. Wow, that was pretty special. Uh, suddenly you feel like that uh, going out on tour and singing country music may not be as dangerous, huh? All right, right, absolutely. <laughs> we love having you here, Tony. When you were with us before, everyone on the show, from the folks backstage to the folks on the stage, fell in love with you. I enjoyed it myself. I appreciate you guys having me out. Uh, the band is phenomenal. And I'm just thankful to be back anywhere, actually, you know. Well, after COVID, yeah, everybody's kind of be uh, just glad to be somewhere right. in front of a, an audience and, right. and hearing the applause of people. That has to be maybe the hardest thing that you miss during the COVID shutdown. 
it is, that connection. And uh, I tell you, that the, the blessing in disguise is the time I got to spend with my family. Yeah. There's a new addition to the family. You have a new baby girl. Congratulations. That's and, uh, wonderful. What's her name? Her name is Maddie. Maddie. I'm Maddie's daddy. Maddie's daddy. I love and, that. And I also got engaged. That's good. So I'm, I'm glad things are opening <laughs> back up because it's really going downhill there for a second. And, uh, well, it's, it's hopefully all back uphill. That's great. But, you know, what I'm excited about is for you to be back on the road means that more people are going to hear you. I, I really believe that you're one of those artists that uh, wherever the top is, you're headed there. And a lot of people who hear you say that. I mean, that's why guys like Vince Gill and other major artists are willing to associate with you because they see in you something pretty unique. A lucky guy, I'll tell you what. But you do traditional country music. Yes. I like to call it the real country music. Yes. Where did you come to that love of traditional country? I grew up listening to Armed Forces Radio. My dad was Navy, and we were... Uh... Got a few Navy people out here, huh? Yeah. And uh, Armed Forces Radio plays any genre, uh, but the traditional country music was what came across the most. And I think it's because of its recurring themes of family and home and things that you think about the most when you're stationed somewhere else. And so uh, it, was, it was always there for me. You know, you were in the Marine Corps for a couple of tours. Were you already doing music then, or was this something you developed later? No, it's actually something I got into after I got out of the Marine Corps. I always enjoyed music and, and being part of it. I didn't have designs on performing, but uh, some things happened for me, and, and, uh, and uh, I'm just super thrilled to be able to do it. I mean, I'm amazed. Your voice is so very, very, uh, it's just got a warmth and an authenticity to it that very few people have. And, and I'm not hard, I mean, I'm, I'm just having a hard time believing that you did not grow up singing and performing and that this was just an outgrowth of all that. I, uh, I think I learned to talk. My, my, my father was a big news fan. He watched news every day. Um, and I was a big fan of Paul Harvey. Oh, yeah. Up. And yeah. so uh, every day I had to listen to Paul Harvey. <laughs> and I think I, I picked up some of, you know, the, the, the way of speaking that they do. And as far as the, the music goes, um, I don't perform any songs that I don't feel, that I don't have some kind of connection to. So I don't really have to, to sell it. I, you know, I, I, I'm just, you know, I, it comes through me, the message of the song. And, and, and so uh, I, it, it's just a God-given gift. You know, there's a whole band over there and a stage. I think we ought to go over there and make some music. What do Let's you think? Let's do it. I think so. Now, to find all of Tony's latest releases and concert schedule so you can see him in person, go to his website, TonyJacksonMusic.com. In a moment, Tony is going to sing, Do I Ever Cross Your Mind? Do not go away. You're going to love it. the show, go to Huckabee.tv for an online exclusive performance of the Grand Tour by Tony Jackson. Now, performing with Trey Corley in the Music City Connection with Mike sitting in on bass is country music star Tony Jackson! Do I ever cross your mind, darling? Do you ever see 
Some situation, somewhere, somehow that triggers your memory. And do you ever wonder what became of all the time? And darling, do I ever, ever cross your mind? Do you ever want to know if all dreams go on endlessly? Or do they just run down somehow and gradually become the custody? Of that melancholy jailer all the time. And darling, do I ever, ever cross your mind? Ever, ever cross your mind? 